Well, good morning to everyone who's left. If you're a guest here, welcome to Alliance Fellowship. My name is Nick. I get to be the pastor here, and I'm so glad that you're with us. I was going to wish my wife a happy anniversary, but as so often, she's in the bathroom. So, and you can, you can all tell her I said that, and it's all right. But this Wednesday, this Wednesday will be 20 years that we've been married, so. So, and yeah, now I'm going to be on the couch, so that'll be fun. Oh, hi. Hi, Katie Risto. Everyone knows you were just in the bathroom. Yeah, yeah. So glad that you're with us this morning. We are going to continue our journey through the Gospels. If you are just joining us, we are in the middle of trying to go through the Gospel story of Jesus' life, uh, but not just Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, but try to get a feel for the whole story in a chronological order. And so today we're going to continue in the book of John. You can open up your Bible to John chapter 4 if you'd like. Last week we studied a story in the beginning of John chapter 4 where Jesus has this amazing interaction with a person that would have been considered completely ostracized from his society. She was a woman, she was a Samaritan, and she was considered morally scandalous. By all of social tradition, by the way that their whole society worked, Jesus should never have even had a conversation with her. But thankfully, Jesus is not held to his societal norms, and so he actually does engage her in conversation. And not only that, he guides her to an understanding of who he actually is and lets her know that she is desired by God and that he longs for her to worship in spirit and in truth. And this leads to many other Samaritans, all who are looked down upon because they are considered a lesser race of people by the Jewish people. And many Samaritans come to know Jesus through this interaction that he has with somebody that would be considered untouchable to most of society. And in this story, we see the gospel story growing. It's not no longer just in Jerusalem and in Judea, as it says in Acts chapter 1, but it is now growing to Samaria and will continue on to the ends of the earth. So we see this story growing bigger and bigger. And then the next short story at the end of John chapter 4 also has a lot in common, but also in many ways has nothing in common. Because this story focuses on a man who's at the extreme opposite, polar side of society. He's a man. He works for the Roman government. He probably has money and prestige and respect. He's nothing like the Samaritan woman. He is a nobleman, or your Bible might say an officer. The Greek word that is used for him is uh, basilikos, which means someone who belongs to the king. And so he probably works for Herod Antipas, the king, the kind of puppet king that is placed over Israel at this time by the Roman government. And for him, he also would have been hated 
by the Jewish people, but for a completely different reason. He's not looked down upon. He, if anything, is feared because he works directly for the man in charge. So he has power. He has prestige. He probably has doctors and soldiers and on and on. He doesn't lack any sort of resources. And yet, despite all of that, none of the things that he has going for him can help him when he is in the greatest need of his life. And so let's look at just the first few verses of the story. If you have your Bible open, John chapter 4, we'll start in verse 43 and just read a few verses to start. This is going back to Jesus is now leaving Samaria where he talked to the woman at the well and he talked to the Samaritan people and says, after the two days, he departed for Galilee. Verse 44, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So like I said, this picks up right after he spends a couple days, not only with the woman at the well, but with the other Samaritan people. He guides them by his own testimony so that they become followers of his. As a side note, I was just thinking about how crazy must this have been for Jesus' disciples? Can you imagine what's going through their minds at this point? Because their entire lives, they've been told, these Samaritan people are garbage. They're trash. And now Jesus guides them right into their hometown and shares the gospel with them, and they become followers. And so they're having to wrap their brains around this idea that the gospel is far bigger than they could have possibly thought. They probably thought the gospel is for the Jews. And yet... Jesus is showing them right here, it is so much greater than that. It is so much bigger than you understand. And so now he leaves Samaria, and he's going to head north into the area of Galilee. And then we have this, if you notice in verse 44, if you have a similar translation to me, it's in parentheses. And it says that Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown which we've talked about before. But if you look at a map, and I think this week I actually have a map. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Okay. (laughs) If you look at a map, and I meant to have like a laser pointer, but I don't have a cool laser pointer. But you can kind of see down towards the bottom left where it says administered through Rome, Jerusalem's down there in Judea. And then if you go up into Samaria, you can see where he was. But then if you go way up to the top, you can see Cana at the very top. And Nazareth is down below Cana a little bit. And so we know Nazareth is actually Jesus' hometown. Right? So when it says he's going into Galilee, that's kind of the whole northern section of Israel. He's not in his hometown, but he is in his home area. And so all three of the other Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they also have this verse about Jesus not being honored in his hometown. But in those verses, he's in Nazareth. In this one, we're not really talking about his hometown so much as his home culture. 
the people who are like him, who are raised kind of in the same situation in Galilee. And so it's this whole idea that he is not being honored by the people who are like him nearly as much as he was honored by the Samaritans, who are very much not like him. He's being dishonored by the people who he is closest to culturally. But here's what's weird about it. Notice if you go back to the verse why it says the Galileans welcomed him. Because it says, right? It says right after he says they're without honor, then it says the Galileans welcomed him. But why? Having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. They don't welcome Jesus into Galilee because they believe that he is the Messiah. They don't welcome him because they believe that he is God in the flesh. They welcome him because some of them saw him do cool stuff. Way back in John chapter 2, when he goes to Jerusalem, and he makes a cord of whips, and he whips some of the oxen, and he drives out the people, and he turns over the money changers, and he gets rid of the birds, and he prophesies against the religious people. They saw that, and they said, this guy is entertaining. We want to see more of what he can do. That's why they welcome him in, not because of faith, but for his entertainment value. They were present to see those things. At this point, the Galileans look at him, and I know this sounds kind of rude, but he's a circus performer. He's a traveling magician that can do cool tricks. That's what they see when they see Jesus, and they welcome him into their area. Jesus knows this, of course, and he speaks this proverb about a prophet being without honor in his hometown. And we're going to see this play out more and more in the story as these people just want to see him do miraculous things but don't want to honor him for who he actually is. So let's keep reading. Verse 46. If you have your Bible, your device, your perfect memory of all Scripture. Verse 46. So he came again to Cana which was at the very top of that map we looked at in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. 48. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all of his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So this story, in a way, brings us full circle in the book of John. Because 
the first thing that we read in the book of John after the first chapter when we talk about Jesus being God and infinite and the creator of all things. In the second chapter, we read about that first miracle of Jesus turning water into wine. And since then, he has traveled all the way down to the south, to Jerusalem. He did those things in the temple. He's traveled back up now into Galilee and back all the way to Canaan now. So now he's back and we're full circle. He had performed a miracle at a joyous event earlier, the wedding. But now he's back in Cana, and somebody's asking him to perform a miracle, not in a joyous event, but in a moment of sorrow. He's being asked to heal a man's son, and this official, or your Bible might say nobleman, comes to Jesus. And I want you to notice this. At first, he asks Jesus, will you come with me and heal my son? And it's not right down the road. It's about 20 miles from Cana to Capernaum. So he's not just saying, hey, like my son's right over here. He's like, no, I need you to travel with me a good distance. And the language in the original language, it's not, he's not just coming and saying, like, hey, my son is sick. Could you come help? No, he's begging. He's pleading. When it says his son, he's, he's, he's using a word that's my beloved child whom I, who I adore. Would you please come and heal my son? You can imagine a father heartfelt longing for the healing of his son. And so he comes and he asks Jesus. But Jesus' response to him seems unusual. And in our translation, it says that he's speaking to the man. But actually in the, the language, if you read the original language, he's using a plural. He's talking to all of them. He's not just talking to the man when he says, you won't believe unless you see sign and wonders. If he was from the south, he would have said, y'all won't believe unless you see signs and wonders. This statement is not necessarily a critique of the man who's desperate for his own son, but a critique of the people who have gathered around just because they want to see Jesus do some cool stuff. They're only there to see the miracles. Not because they're longing for the fulfillment of the kingdom of God or watching for the Messiah. These people are seeking signs of power. Listen, they're seeking signs of power, not revelation from God. That's a big difference. At this point, it seems like the official grows kind of irritated. Because this time he doesn't ask. He says, sir... Come with me and heal my son. He's demanding now. This is the kind of person that is used to getting what he wants. He doesn't have to ask twice very often. So when Jesus doesn't answer the way that he likes, he says, no, come with me. Heal my son. But Jesus responds with his own command back. And it's so interesting because this guy says, come. And Jesus says, go. Your son will live. Jesus is not real good at getting bossed around. I don't know if you've noticed that. But like, there's one person that tells Jesus what to do, and he's on a different echelon, okay? He says, go, your son will live. And then this just blows my mind. The, Jesus says, go, right? The guy says, I need you to come here. Jesus says, no, I need you to go there. 
And then the guy just leaves. He's okay with that answer. And so now we see this weird thing where the guy who maybe we thought was going to be the bad guy in the story actually has greater faith than the Galileans who are watching. Because he believes the word of God. And so we see here that the faith of the nobleman is incredible. He's 20 miles away from his son, and yet he trusts just the word of Jesus. That Jesus says, your son will be healed. And to make that point even further, here's the craziest thing about this story. And maybe you noticed this, but maybe you didn't. Notice this, verse 41 It says, as he was traveling home, his servants meet him and give him this amazing news that his son is alive and recovering. He says, when did my son get better? And they say, yesterday. Which means he didn't go home that day. He believed so fully in what Jesus told him that he didn't even go home the same day. He could have. He's 20 miles away. He's rich. He's probably got a horse or a camel. Even if he's walking, he still could have made it home by nightfall that evening. But he doesn't. He stays in town and, like, just takes care of some other business. And then the next morning, heads back, and his servants meet him. And he finds out that his son was healed at the exact moment, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, which is the seventh hour of the day. They say his fever broke at 1 o'clock, and he knows that's the exact moment when Jesus said, go, your son will be healed. And he believed him so fully that he just relaxed for the rest of the day or did some business. That is mind-blowing. If you have children like I do, you're like, what? I would have been running home. Even if I had the faith that this man had just to take the word of God, I still would have been running because I would have wanted to make sure that Jesus didn't accidentally heal the kid across the street or something. But he doesn't even go home that day. When the man does get home, he begins to testify to the power and to the legitimacy of Jesus. He leads his entire household to faith, which for a man like him is not just his wife and children, it's all of his servants, it's all the people that are part of his house. We don't know how many people, but it's probably a lot. And he testifies, he evangelizes to them about the power of God. And this story, together with the woman at the well, continue to make this point that the gospel is far bigger than anybody is understanding at this point. It's not just for the Jews. It's also for the Samaritans. And now we're talking about a guy who works for Rome and might be a Gentile for all we know. And Jesus is doing these miraculous things for all of them. Even though the woman at the well and the official were complete opposites, they are both hated by most people in Jesus' social circles. One, because she's a scandalous woman of Samaritan heritage, and the other because he's a servant of a puppet king who oppresses their people. And yet Jesus treats both of them with love and compassion in a way that I guarantee his disciples are sitting back and being like, what? is going on. 
we thought you were the savior of Israel, and we know you are, but you're spending all this time with Samaritan women and Roman governors. And What's happening? It's so often where people are just like, Jesus isn't doing what I think he should. And I'm sure none of us are guilty of that at all. Right? But Jesus is doing what he's called to do, which is to spread the gospel through the world. And both the woman at the well and the official nobleman go back and they begin to evangelize, begin to testify of the power of God. And I think it would be easy to just lump this guy in with the other people that are just seeking the miraculous. Because that's what he wants, right? He wants a miracle for his son. But the faith of this man blows me away. Just the fact that he traveled 20 miles to go find Jesus shows us that he has a faith that is greater than the people who just kind of walk out once Jesus gets there and they're like, all right, do some cool stuff now. No, he travels him and he goes after him. And then he trusts the word of God. When Jesus speaks to them, he takes it as the testimony of God and he believes him. And it changes him. It changes his world. But here's the weird thing about this whole chapter that I had to wrestle with this week. And maybe this pops into your head, maybe it doesn't, but the most challenging thing about this passage is it kind of opens up a question for us that it doesn't really answer all the way. What do we do with this whole idea of Jesus doing miraculous things? What are the advantages and disadvantages of witnessing miraculous signs and wonders? Because on one hand, we see Jesus seems obviously annoyed by it, right? He says, you won't believe until you see signs and wonders. But then Jesus does signs and wonders that lead people to believe. So, How do you wrestle with that? Or even if you look at the whole book of John, if you were to just break down the whole book of John, it's broken down into Jesus doing seven miraculous signs and wonders. And at the very end of the book of John, John says, I wrote this so that you would believe. And so it's this whole setup. I'm showing you these things so you will believe. So how do we reconcile this? What do we do with Jesus speaking seemingly kind of negatively about people who are only seeking signs and wonders. Or, if you look in Matthew, he speaks even more strongly, saying, an evil and adulterous generation seek for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah, which is his death and resurrection after three days. And yet the Word of God tells us all these stories about the miraculous signs and wonders of Jesus during his public time. It often tells us how these signs lead to faith. So what do we do with all of this? This is not an easy answer. I've seen drastically different sides of this in my time following Jesus. I know people that have basically said all of the miraculous things of God ceased as soon as the apostles died. It's a theological understanding called cessationism, that all of the 
miracles ceased when the apostles died. I struggle with that view because it, it puts limitations on God and because I've heard a great deal of stories of miraculous things that God has done. I've seen some pretty miraculous things. I've never seen someone's leg grow back. I would love to. But I've seen some pretty miraculous things. But on the polar opposite side, I spent eight years living in a town with a church that is known all over the world for their teachings and their schools that are fully devoted to, to the pursuits of the miraculous signs and wonders of God. And I struggle with that just as much because in my personal experience, from what I saw in most of those people, all that grew in them was a desire to see more signs and wonders not actually a desire to know God more and to more fully surrender their lives to Jesus. So what do we do with this? Our denomination, if you even knew we were a part of one, we are, Christian Missionary Alliance, was founded by a guy named A.B. Simpson, and he wrote the fourfold gospel. I have a little logo from our denomination. If you can throw that up. This is our denominational logo. And you can see there's four pictures there on the world. And it stands for Jesus as our Savior, our Sanctifier, our Healer, and our Coming King. And so Jesus as Healer is a part of our DNA as a denomination. We believe that He heals. We believe that He does miraculous things. That He's the Savior of the world. That He's calling people to growth and holiness, that he's coming back again, but also that he is indeed the healer of our souls and our physical bodies. And so again, I'm repeating myself, but what do we do with all of this? I'm not going to give you a satisfactory answer to this. You are not going to leave here being like, oh, thank you, Nick, for this theological treatise on the miraculous. But I am going to say a couple things. This is one of the first times that I've been writing a sermon and I had to get up and walk away for hours because I was just, I'm wrestling through, like, what do we do with this? And I came back to it, and I'll I'll say this. I think a big part of this whole discussion comes down to why somebody is pursuing the miraculous from God. What is your desire? We can go all the way back to the sermon we talked about. What are you seeking? The gospel writer John tells us these stories so that people will recognize the reality of who Jesus really is. The signs and the wonders are not the end of the story. The signs and the wonders are literally signs that point to Jesus. The woman at the well has a miraculous experience with Jesus, and it drives her to knowing him more fully. The nobleman is seeking a miracle for his beloved son, but that miracle drives him to worshiping the Lord and testifying to the power of God. But the other Galileans come out to see Jesus because they saw what he did in Jerusalem and they just want more entertainment. They just want to see somebody do something that they can't explain. So the question is, why do we come to see Jesus? 
Why are you pursuing Jesus? Why are you pursuing the miraculous things that he can do in your life? And ultimately, what is the object of our worship? That's the question. Do you worship the signs and the wonders? Do you worship seeing God do something incredible? Or does it cause you to worship him? Are you worshiping as people are so often given to you? Do you start to worship the created rather than the one who created it? And we have to start having this appetite that all of these things that we see, all of these miraculous signs and wonders that you might get a chance to see in your life, that you don't look at that thing and start saying, oh, that's incredible, but you look at it and say, God is incredible. The Lord who can do that, the Lord who in John 1 creates the heavens and earth from nothing is also the Lord in John 4 who can heal a noble man's son. And in both, we don't look to the, to the miracle, we look to the one who's who can do the miraculous things and worship him. My prayer today is that my appetite would be for the Lord. Not for the things that I might be able to see him do. Not even for the miraculous things that I've seen him do in this room, in the lives of people that I know, but that I would look at him and say, God, you're so good. That my appetite would be to be mind-blown by his power, to be awe of him, to praise and worship him, and that my desire for him would grow, not my desire just to see more things. Because I think that's at the core of this. Again, I'm not going to give you like a perfect answer, but I think that's where I, I land this week is, what are we seeking Is it just to see God do something that I can't explain? Or is it to know God more fully? Because that's the kingdom of God. That's the whole point of all of this. Jesus comes and he does these things and he guides these people so that the kingdom of God may be fully realized in this world. My prayer for myself, my prayer for us, is that we would have the appetite to see him.